this is Josh Korda of Dharma Punks, New York. My Buddhist pastoral work is supported by donations only. If you'd like to help, Venmo Dharma Punks NYC or use the PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. I hope you enjoy this podcast and thanks for your support. Hard to uncover many positives for 2020. COVID, a novel pathogen, claimed nearly 2 million lives last I checked, cost untold millions uh, their livelihoods, left so many people food insecure, impoverished. Once again, our police forces engage in violent acts towards people of color and towards those of us that protested systemic racism we spend another year with a raging narcissistic sociopath in office who is entirely indifferent to human suffering uh, declared war on mother earth and democracy itself and yet somehow managed to accrue some 70 million votes for his re-election thankfully he lost amidst all the suffering and the hardship of year 2020, it nonetheless provided a valuable, clear, spiritual lesson of the greatest import. Namely, it revealed that we live entirely without guarantees. Our world is inherently unreliable. Our health, relationships, social structures prone to become uncertain paper by the economists Ahir, Brown, and Furcheri, who noted that even during times of global, when the global economy grows, markers of instability, volatility of resources and social structures become even more unstable. So we can only imagine uh, the instability that was revealed during this calendar year. So how we respond to instability and uncertainty and unreliability when everything it seems that uh, we can take for granted is no longer so solid. And Marx said, when everything that's solid melts into air. For some, it, this instability and unreliability can be a source of great suffering and anxiety. But for others, it can actually instigate transcendence and a radical reevaluation of what really matters in life. Now, it's of course common for individuals to seek security and validation through status orientation and what some psychologists refer to as object referral. Um, the psychologist Travis and the boy, uh, <clears throat> wherein we look for a sense of security and our sense of self and our sense of validation through comparing ourselves with external markers. You know, how many Facebook friends do I have versus other people? How many Instagram followers? How much money am I making from my work and from my art? How much financial and social capital do I have in comparison with others? The people that I went to high school with, did, 
Did they go to better colleges? The people I went to college with, did they go to get better jobs? Such and such friends are uh, married and uh, buying a condo, and I am unmarried and living in a rental. Other people have children, and I don't. Other people have published books. What about me? And so on and so forth. It sounds kind of vulgar when we say it out loud, and yet this kind of status orientation is all too endemic to and all too naturalized in our, in our world, in our social environment. Seeking validation by contrasting ourselves with others is not limited to the vulgar display of wealth and status. It's also even found in virtual signaling. I've been on such and so many marches this year. Did you go on? Did you march? Did you do X and Y? We can signal our status through uh, talking about... Um, our education, the commoditization of experience. I've been to uh, yoga retreats in Costa Rica and uh, in Tulum, have you? Um, the commoditization of ideas. Who's got the, the most uh, compelling thoughts? I've even seen, uh, frighteningly, well-meaning Buddhists sitting and comparing which person has been on the longer silent retreat, to my astonishment. Even spiritual practice can be turned into an external marker of status and can be used to validate ourselves by contrasting ourselves with what others have attained. Um, the Buddha, some... Where's my notes? Uh, the Buddha, 2,500 years ago, uh, this is one of my favorite suttas, the Atadanda, said, Looking around me, all I saw were people floundering like fish in small puddles, competing with one another. Their world was entirely without substance. Everyone was seeking safety in things, yet everything was already claimed. Nothing in the end was left but competition and discontentment. Nothing in the end is left but competition and discontentment. And of course, um, I don't think that things have gotten any better in the last 2,500 years. So, there's a lot of reasons why we are inclined to seek security, validation, self-worth through external uh, markers, through status, through reputation. When we succeed, it's rewarded with dopamine. Dopamine, of course, the neurotransmitter that uh, provides sense of power, uh, accomplishment, success, the boosts that we get when we eat uh, chocolate, buy something for ourselves, uh, when people uh, gamble, when people have sex, when people uh, eat carbs, when we practice bargain hunting, all of those dopamine re rewards are the 
same uh, rewards that we accrue when we feel that we have done something that sets us apart, that makes us look special, that contrasts us successfully with others. The dopamine reward has everything to do with uh, accruing uh, survival resources, and one of the oldest survival resources species evolutionary ancestry was when we would accrue resources that would create tribal status that would set us apart. Alas, though, dopamine rewards are exceedingly short-lived. That's also due to evolution. If the rewards of achieving, acquiring, amassing, consuming, hoarding, uh, and uh, otherwise uh, accomplishing things that set us apart from others, if that those rewards lasted, then we wouldn't be motivated to go right back out and to keep on competing and trying to amass more and more resources. So evolution saw to it that dopamine rewards would last for a very short period of time. Researchers, three researchers in 1978 at the University of Northwestern and the University of Massachusetts did this famous study where they uh, interviewed at length recent lottery winners as well as victims of catastrophic accidents, people who had suddenly been rendered paraplegic or quadriplegic. And what they found in this study was that all individuals, these individuals revert back to the baseline happiness that preceded winning the lottery or the catastrophic uh, accidents. In fact, the people who interestingly had any uptick were the recent paraplegics who expressed that they experienced far more happiness from everyday pleasures than those who won the lottery. Kahneman and Deaton, who around in the 1980s, I'm not sure, 83, I'm going to guess, but uh, did a famous research where of baseline happiness, and they found that once people were capable of covering their basic necessities of food and rent, they reached a point of diminishing returns. And at this time, uh, this was uh, about, uh, I think the most recent research was in 2008 or something, but they found that ha as households rose over, at that point, $70,000 uh, as their uh, income in total, uh, the more money they made, the more stress and the more worry that they experienced rather than uh, accruing wealth, diminishing anxiety and worry. It actually worked in the inverse. And they found that the moment people were able to cover what the Buddha called the requisites of life, food, shelter, clothing, and medicine, that from that point on, there is actually diminishing returns again to increased wealth. Alaric Al Aranter, um, is a neuroscientist, I believe, at Northwestern University, uh, or is it Michigan? Oh, God, I can't remember. 
but um, he found that the people who define themselves in terms of accomplishments, status, object accrual, uh, and contrasting with others exhibited not only far less frontal lobe activation, but were far less resilient to setbacks and traumas and showed less preparatory responses to instability in life. So in other words, the more we, com we seek validation by our accomplishments, by the achievements, even the experiences that we've had that are, you know, the kind of commodification of experience, leaves us actually less resilient to instability. Um, so, um, the more also we contrast ourselves with others, for self-definition, identity, and a sense of security, the more we lose what I would call our sense of belonging. In contrasting ourselves and constantly comparing ourselves with others, we feel more insecure because we feel less uh, connected through common experience. We become even disembodied from our felt experience we feel empty uh, and anxious about our tribal status. Not only is it hard to transcend this uh, constantly seeking validation externally because it is so grounded in post-industrial capitalist culture, but putting that aside, uh, it's not just due to our social conditioning. We are becoming, as Ian McGilchrist, the great neuropsychologist, knows, more and more left hemisphere dominant as time goes on. And the left hemisphere is a disembodied cognitive ivory tower that is thought, that is focused on internal thought and chatter and has very little connection to the body to felt experience. The left brain views the world as separate objects to be grasped, manipulated, hoarded, and controlled. It represents life as uh, ideas and concepts that are very often dual. Self versus other, good, bad, useful, useless, and so forth. The left brain is dopaminergic. It's constantly searching for uh, sensory pleasures and status symbols, etc., that confer this reward of the dopamine rush. It, it prioritizes self-reliance versus interconnection. The more left hemispherically dominant we become, the more we experience what's known as avoidant attachment. It conceptualizes futures where security is accrued again through attaining and amassing even more resources. Life inherently to the left brain is a competition for survival resources again that are rewarded with dopamine. So given all this, what, what the heck is the alternative?
if all of this is so uh, prevalent, yet ultimately unsuccessful in construing, or not construing, and providing uh, any real uh, reliable sense of security worth um, and a sense of purpose and meaning to our life, where do we find it? Well, spiritual practice is based on a, an alternative to object referral or to status orientation. It's actually a form of what could be called self-referral, wherein our sense of security, meaning, and self is established not through external validation or external referral to comparing and contrasting ourselves with others, but through awareness and reflection upon what actions and endeavors really create lasting well-being and esteem. So rather than look how, how have I done in comparison to others, how much have I achieved in comparison to others, one looks within and asks, for example, what actions in my life do I feel the most proud of? What have I done that I feel the greatest sense of ownership? What actions make me still feel happy internally when I reflect on them? All of these practices in no way ask us to compare ourselves with others in any way, shape, or form. Uh, this is a reflection upon what really creates well-being and inner esteem and feelings of peace. A great psychologist, uh, very, very important, Robert Emmons, Emmons, I don't know how his name is pronounced, I've just read his work, um, wrote a wonderful book called The Psychology of Ultimate Concerns, which was noting how spiritual practice aligns us with what could be called the big picture. Not the day-to-day -day hassles, the setbacks, the people who are irritating, the things that don't go our way, but given how fragile and uncertain life is, spiritual practice asks again and again what really matters. What has left a lasting impact on my well-being? The Buddha in the Kalama Sutta said, don't live your life. This is a sutta, by the way. The Kalama Sutta is famous. He goes to a group of people who are very, very jaded and cynical. They've already been bombarded with countless spiritual teachers and gurus and um, so forth. And they basically ask the Buddha, why should we why should we believe anything you say? We, every week a different spiritual teacher comes through and tells us something different. And, you know, frankly, at this point it's all very confusing. And in the Kamalas, Kalama Sutta, the Buddha says, don't live your life in accordance with traditions. Don't follow or believe holy scriptures, holy books. Don't go by what other people say is true or what's claimed to be common sense. Don't go 
or it don't live in accordance with views that are popular or even I love this the most what a spiritual teacher says only go by what through reflection you've seen over time and that's key over time to be true in the teaching the Buddha then asks the Kalamas to reflect on their lives and then asks that they uh, disclose what actions made them feel the greatest sense of um, well-being and inner peace that was lasting and they found it was compassion and gratitude and appreciation of life rather than constantly that future-oriented uh, accumulating what do I not have that other people have that I have to get to make myself feel better about myself? Spiritual practice is bilaterally integrating. What does that mean? It actually counteracts the left hemispheric dominant culture. It's interesting that uh, McGilchrist in his book talks about how spiritual practice actually allows for greater integration of right hemispheric processes. Now these processes are very far far more familiar to spiritual practice. They're not, uh, they're far less verbal. They're far more embodied and oriented towards felt experience. Like spiritual practice, the right hemisphere is comfortable with ambiguity and open-ended symbols and metaphors. The right brain doesn't focus its attention on objects that it refers to, but on entire experiences. If we're out in the world and in a, uh, in a, you know, we go to a social gathering, which we probably haven't, it's a bad example. <laughs> uh, see if I can come up with a better example. If you walk by, if you walk into a store, and that's still like unlikely these days, but if you did, and you just take in the gestalt of the entire experience, being in the store, the feeling of this new environment, the sense of what it's like to be in this new area, you will actually be activating your right hemisphere. That's broad background awareness. But the moment you focus on an object that you want to purchase, or you look at a specific individual that you compare yourself to, then your left hemisphere lights up. And so the spiritual embodied awareness, which is key to meditation, is actually integrating the way that the right brain actually communicates its concerns. What is the concerns of the right hemisphere? Primarily security and security not through amassing, attaining objects at all, but security through being connected in a reliable, safe way with people and places that have been associated over time with safety. The right brain is a timeless domain that focuses on lived experience and has no interest in the future. It has no concern about what we haven't attained or amassed. It 
actually is the right brain when we experience perfectionism, stalling, procrastination. That's the right brain at work. Because basically, it's sabotaging through avoidance coping goals and plans that it feels leaves us exposed to shame, rejection, social approbation, and so forth. So it's not a mistake. That's simply one of the ways that the right hemisphere connects with us. Harold Koenig, a psychologist at Duke, compiled 100 studies showing how spiritual practice not only promotes hemispheric integration, but resilience to trauma and setbacks. In the work of Julio Almeida and Nacello, three different psychologists, uh, in a paper called Spirituality and Resilience in Trauma Victims, spiritual practice was shown to promote a worldview that promotes resilience to instability and to sudden setbacks in life through a variety of means. The first is that it promotes a benevolent reappraisal of what really matters in life. Those who, after they lose work due to the economic uh, disaster of 2020, if they're a spiritual practitioner, they're less likely to experience shame or take the loss of work personally. They tend to see the universal quality in experience. People who practice spiritual meditation and reflections tend to seek reliable forms of support in gratitude practice and appreciation of what they still have. Active surrender. They towards achieving reasonable goals surrounding it and focus simply their attention on doing the next right thing. In the neuropsychologist Emo Hendes's work along with the neuropsychologist James Austin found that people who practice meditation and contemplation of ultimate concerns again what really matters increase their serotonin levels, which happen to be long-lasting, as opposed to the dope short-term, short-lasting dopamine rewards and status-seeking, status-seeking, and so forth. Um, they found Sarah Lazar at Harvard, wonderful research, showed that people who meditate as literal, little as 20 minutes a day or engaged in spiritual contemplation, decrease activity in the fear and alarm center of the brain, especially the amygdala, while increasing activity in the prefrontal cortex and the anterior cingulate, which allows us to reduce trauma, anxiety, and actually allows us to integrate emotionally painful experiences into our life story in a constructive and coherent way. And for those of you who, uh, unlike uh, myself, I'm a Buddhist pastor, so I don't do this, but if for those of you who are into plant medicine, um, spiritual practice actually has been found to reduce 
the visual information that is shunted, shuttled from the occipital lobe through the reticular activating system to the frontal lobe. So we're more likely to experience mild visual hallucinations when we practice, which is in common with psychedelics, which also raise serotonin levels in the brain. So if you want to have a little trip, you can also do some practice. It's not only good for your resilience, your well-being, your lasting happiness, but you might also get a free, uh, you know, <laughs> trip. I'm not so sure I should be advertising that, but I'll do it anyway. Um, ironically, when we practice contemplation on what really, as we reflect on what actions and endeavors have left the greatest impact on our well-being and our life satisfaction, we refamiliarize ourselves with the ultimate truth that we are a social species, that happiness comes not from reflecting on how we differ from others, but what ultimately connects us. We all experience old age. We all experience illness. We all experience death, loneliness. We all experience loss. The Buddha said we all experience not getting what we want. He also said we all experience the struggles of being stuck with people we can't abide. And we also experience missing people that we love who are not with us or who are not available. Sorrow, pa pain, uh, lamentation, grief, despair, he said, are universal experiences that uh, forge common bounds, as well as the experiences of joy and happiness and connectedness. All of this, these reflections, of course, go against the flow, as the Buddha said, of the world, which is, of course, focused on status, object referral, and external validation. The Buddha, this is another quote. What kind of people go with the flow of the world? Those who seek and indulge in things that feel good only in the short term, who compete with others for scant resources, and in doing so engage in harmful acts that cause suffering. So traditionally in Buddhist practice, especially on New Year's Eve, we reflect on these ultimate concerns and there's certain practices that are embodied, embody the, all of this, the core of spiritual practice. Um, first, rather than competing with each other's endlessly for resources, uh, Buddhist and spiritual practitioners who are interested in the Dharma take, set intentions, or what's called take the precepts, to live in accordance with other beings. And so we uh, set an intention to refrain from killing, to refrain from taking anything that isn't offered to us. We refrain from causing harm to others intentionally through speech, through sexual endeavors, and through indulging in intoxicants. As the Buddha said in the Kalama Sutta, even if there's no world after death, and here in my present life, I'm with ease. 
free of ill will and needless trouble. Refuge in internal ref in internal awareness is one of the three refuges that are also taken on New Year's Eve. That's known as Buddha Nisati. We abandon, in essence, the delusion that true peace isn't available here and now. We abandon the delusion that's only available in some imaginary future when we've accrued greater status or resources or so on and so forth. In meditation, we don't engage as business in business as usual. We don't sit down to get lost in thought. We don't lie down to fall asleep. We don't walk to get anywhere. We sit, lie down, stand, or walk simply to connect with the felt experience that occurs in these endeavors. And in so doing, we begin to appreciate the uh, amazing profound sensations that are associated with these all too seemingly mundane acts. 90 million years of evolution produce brains capable of focusing attention not just on threats and opportunities for food and security. That's all my cats do. That's all they're interested in. Where's the warm lap? Where's the food? And what was that sound? I'm getting the hell out of here. But we have the ability to actually focus our awareness due to uh, the cingulate, anterior cingulate and the uh, acetylcholine and so forth that it consumes to focus our awareness on sensations and experiences that actually produce no short-term pleasures or dopamine rewards. But when we focus our attention and sustain our attention on, for example, the breath, even though being aware of one's breath has absolutely no immediate survival or status rewards whatsoever, it actually promotes lasting peace because long diaphragmatic breathing actually stimulates the vagal nerve, which upregulates GABA, and that's an anxiolytic, i.e. it reduces anxiety. In essence, as Abraham Maslow, the great psychologist, the hierarchy of needs, noted that mindful awareness invests everyday activities and relationships suddenly with a sense of the sacred and the profound. That's what Buddha Nusati is about, finding transcendence in the everyday and the mundane. We also take refuge in the Dharma of spiritual wisdom. We have the capacity to achieve transcendence through orienting ourselves, as I said, through ultimate concerns. What really brings lasting peace? A example of dharmic wisdom is found, for example, when we confront death and instability in the Marana Sati practice, and we ask ourselves, knowing how impermanent my life is, how every breath could be my last, as I look back on my life, 
What do I feel most proud of? What gives me the greatest sense of ease? Or what do I, what actions create this, the feelings of my heart warming and so forth? We find, as the Buddha said in uh, his teachings, that practices based on generosity and appreciation for what we is available rather than what we don't have actually allows us to feel in the long term a far greater degree of ease and peace of mind. And there's refuge finally in the Sangha, which is rather than living in competition with others, where our isolated selves are constantly worrying about uh, and viewing life in terms of what it means about me and how I differ from others and so on and so forth, self-oriented default mode operation, thinking of the brain, ventral medial and all that, we, we reflect on all of those people who have expressed generosity and kindness, all of those connections that are available and all of the things in our experience that connect us with others. The Buddha said, I don't see any quality by which the skillful rises and the unskillful subsides better than focusing on our friendship and connection with others. And in uh, another famous sutta, the Buddha is asked if uh, reflecting on friendship with others is half of the practice. And he says, no, it's the entirety of the practice. So, um, I think that's probably enough. Hopefully I communicated something worth reflecting on. And so we're going to do a little bit of practice. And then we're going to, if you like, take together the refuges and precepts. And you'll all become... Official Buddhists, no, you don't have to become official Buddhists. It's entirely up to you. But uh, it's a beautiful practice. Uh, and so first I'm just going to lead a very basic reflection meditation, uh, which embodies some of these insights. And then we'll take the uh, refuges and precepts. And then there will be time for anyone to, uh, for people to share. So, um, closing your eyes, that is conducive, of course, to internal rather than external reference. Bringing awareness to our internal experience. And seeing if we can expand awareness so that we don't feel that we exist entirely inside of our heads and that the body is something essentially hanging out below us, sustaining life, but uh, not actually a, a place or a, uh, an area that awareness can embody and be infused into. What we want to do is see if we can expand and lower awareness down 
into the body so that we no longer feel that we exist in our heads. And when we do this, the more we feel that we can move our awareness closer to the sensations of our chest, the sensations of the diaphragm expanding and contracting with the breath, the sensations of the abdomen, whether it's tight or released, the sit bones, the palms of the hands. The closer we can get to these sensations, the more we actually engage and integrate the right brain into our awareness and in so doing actually become more aware of that which really has lasting impact and what really matters. We're focusing our attention for a little while just on the breath, expanding and contracting either the abdomen or the chest. The longer and smoother the exhalation, 
downregulate the nervous system. So settling and especially focusing attention on long exhalations, long peaceful exhalations.
And so in the aligning ourselves with ultimate concerns that are most important in life, knowing that nothing is certain, knowing how fragile life is, knowing how little in the world can be relied upon, knowing that each breath could be one's last, and that we only have a finite amount of time. As we look back with an open awareness and we ask the question, what actions, endeavors of mind, of mind create right now a sense of inner esteem? What have I done that I feel the greatest sense of worthiness or pride or um, well-being? What really matters as I look back on my life that I've done. For some it might be acts of kindness, compassion. For some attaining sobriety or letting go of harmful relationships. For some positive connections that allowed us to overcome traumas and great emotional wounds. For some transcended experiences associated with deep spiritual contemplation The possibilities are, of course, endless. Use this time to, as we leave yet another year, a year of instability, uncertainty, loss. What stands out now to us is that which we feel provides us with the greatest sense of worthiness.
this reflection can be practiced in any meditation, but for right now, in this meditation, whatever this reflection may have revealed, set an intention to prioritize that action that has produced the greatest lasting well-being. Set an intention to prioritize that in your life. That is an ultimate concern. That is a goal that matters far more than the mundane day-to-day hassles to-do lists of life. And now, taking the precepts, if you like, I'm going to say them slowly, and you can repeat them after me if you like, or just continue with your practice. Knowing how deeply our lives are interconnected, I undertake the commitment to protect life. I undertake the the commitment to protect life. Knowing how deeply our lives are connected, I undertake the commitment to refrain from taking that which hasn't been offered. I undertake the commitment to refrain from taking that which hasn't been offered. Knowing how deeply our lives are connected, I undertake the commitment to refrain from causing harm through any forms of sexuality. I refrain from causing harm through any forms of sexuality. Knowing how deeply our lives are connected, I undertake the commitment to speak truthfully without the intention of causing harm to others. To speak truthfully without the intention of causing harm to others. Knowing how deeply our lives are interconnected, I undertake the commitment to refrain from consuming intoxicants to the point of heedlessness and unskillfulness. For those of you who are sober, it can simply be to refrain from consuming intoxicants and leave it at that. And finally, Buddhan Saranam Gachami, I take refuge in the Buddha.
Dhamman Saranam Gachami, I take refuge in the Dharma. Sangan Saranam Gachami, I take refuge in the Sangha.